Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 354, Dr. Stephen Nemish on Trinity Theories, Part 1. Dr. Stephen Nemish has a Ph.D. in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. He works in Christian systematic theology, phenomenological philosophy, and the intersection of the two. He's recently been working on a critique of the presuppositions of the small-c Catholic tradition, which has resulted in no less than three forthcoming books. The first is called Orthodoxy and Heresy. This will be a short book published by Cambridge University Press, which Dr. Nemish tells me should be out in November of 2022. So be on the lookout for that. A second forthcoming book is entitled Theology of the Manifest, Christianity Without Metaphysics. In this book, Dr. Nemish presents a systematic critique of the methodological and onto-epistemological presuppositions of the small-c Catholic tradition and a reinterpretation of the Christian faith along phenomenological lines as a Christianity without metaphysics. Finally, in the works also is a book called Theological Authority in the Church, Reconsidering Traditionalism and Hierarchy, which may be out as early as December 2022, in which Dr. Nemish argues from the New Testament to a low conception of ecclesial authority in theology, such that no one in the church has any further authority than that of derivatively, fallibly, and in principle, reversibly, relating to and bearing witness to the teachings of Jesus and the works of God in him. Dr. Nemish also has a YouTube channel in which he discusses matters of Christian theology, It's called Words of Life with Dr. Stephen Nemish, and his last name is spelled N-E-M-E-S. It looks like Nemes, but it's pronounced Nemish. Now, despite all of that, oddly enough, this and the next podcast were inspired by what I consider to be an epic thread of tweets that is a series of posts on the social media site Twitter. After going through the first three tweets, we get sidetracked onto matters of the relationship between God and the cosmos. Interestingly, Dr. Nemish doesn't accept the standard sort of creation-from-nothing account of that. We also discuss Dr. Nemish's rather complicated attitude towards Trinity theories, as well as the topic of authority in Christian theology. So I think you'll find the conversation to be very interesting and stimulating. And in part two, we will finish going through his epic Trinity tweet thread. Dr. Nemish, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you for having me. So just about 24 hours before we're recording this episode, you unleashed a mighty Twitter thread of your thoughts about the Trinity. And I read this thread and said, wow, this is a Christian philosopher slash theologian who's really thinking about this subject. I think it'd be really fun to have a conversation about your thoughts about the Trinity. But before we get to the tweet, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your brand of uh, Christian background and so on? Sure. Uh, my parents were Pentecostal immigrants from Romania, which is a majority Eastern Orthodox country. I grew up in the diaspora Romanian Pentecostal church, and there are plenty of them in certain major cities in America, although you might not know this. 
When I was a bit older, around 16 years old, I started to study theology. I got very interested in it. And, you know, I had like every teenager who gets interested in these issues. I had my Calvinist phase. Um, I went through <laughs> I that. I did too. <laughs> yeah. When I was an undergrad, I read actually a book by our mutual friend, William Valicella. I read his book on existence when I was an undergrad. And that really confirmed in my mind, it really solidified my appreciation for classical theism and for the doctrine of divine simplicity. So I started reading more theological works along these lines, and I was trying to understand, you know, what does a theology that takes seriously divine simplicity look like? I read a lot of church fathers, especially the sub-apostolic sort of pre-Nicene fathers. I would read from the Desert Fathers. I would have a copy of the sayings of the Desert Fathers with me, and I would read it as I would walk from class to class. I read a lot of Greek philosophy, uh, ancient Greek philosophy. I read Pierre Hadot's book, What is Ancient Philosophy? And it was really influential on me. I began studying Indian philosophy also. I have a minor in religious studies. My major was philosophy, but I have a minor in religious studies. I took a couple courses on Indian religions. Um, I took a course on the Tao Te Ching that was also very interesting. And so mm -hmm. towards the end of my time in my undergrad, I think I had more of a sort of a syncretistic kind of Christian faith than the Calvinism that I had when I first went in. And that caused some problems with some friends of mine. And there were, there were some troubles. And then I started my MDiv at Fuller. And before I started my MDiv, around the time of that summer, I read a book by Jürgen Moltmann called The Crucified God. And that really solidified in my mind the centrality of the crucifixion of Jesus for Christian faith, something that sort of sets it apart. You know, I started to step back a little bit from the syncretism of my late undergrad days. Long story short, you know, I eventually got my PhD in theology. And I don't know that I would call myself anything of any sort. If I can pick three thinkers that sort of encapsulate how I think about things, I would choose Huldrych Zwingli, Adolf von Harnack, and the 20th century phenomenologist Michel Henry. These are three people who you might say represent a kind of a, a liberal wing of Christian theology with an emphasis especially on the world of experience and on the meaning of Christian faith for everyday life. So they're not big on metaphysical speculations. They're not big on the authority of the church. You know, for example, for Parnak, you know, the Catholic tradition, which for a lot of people just is Christianity, you know, the small case C Catholic. The Catholic tradition is for Harnack a particular historical reception of the gospel, and it is not just to be identified straight away with that gospel. And I agree with him entirely on that. My dissertation was it was on the topic of the phenomenology of scripture, and I, I had a long discussion in there about the relationship between scripture and ecclesial tradition. And this is something that I talk about a lot in some forthcoming books of mine. So I've always been thinking about this relation between scripture and tradition. How do we know what scripture says? You know, what kind of authority do we grant to tradition of the church? When is it ever appropriate to question the tradition of the church, to push back against it, to, you know, to make changes, to think differently about things? Um, so all that is to say, I don't know that I fit anywhere in particular. I attend a traditional Anglican church because I love uh -huh. the priest and the community there, but I don't know that I would call myself any kind of Christian, you know, any particular kind of Christian. But just Christian of a unusual sort? Yeah, I, I think of myself as just a Christian. If you want to know how I think about things, you know, Huldrych Zwingli is a nice example of my general theological opinions. Mm -hmm. So I would guess I would call myself sort of a Zwinglian in mm -hmm. certain respects, but you know, I don't think I fit in anywhere in particular. Now, did you kind of have to exit the Pentecostal realm when you gained all your philosophical interests? I didn't have to, but that's how it turned out because I moved from my home here in Phoenix to Pasadena, California to do my PhD at Fuller, uh, studying with Oliver Crisp. Mm -hmm. And so being away from my home community, you know, I no longer went to that church. 
And then when I moved back to Arizona after my PhD, I didn't want to go back to that community. I don't have anything against them in particular. It's just that it it was not, I suppose, satisfying or interesting to me to continue attending that church. I wanted to go to a different one. Mm-hmm. I don't have any like philosophical or theological objections to Pentecostalism. I think certainly my upbringing as a Pentecostal has influenced my thinking in a lot of ways. Um, it's just that I, it was that particular congregation that I didn't feel that I wanted to continue you know, mm-hmm. worshiping with them anymore. Let's start off with your, uh, your epic tweet thread here. You start by saying that the doctrine of the Trinity is understood to assert that God is one usia subsisting in three hypostases. But what does mm-hmm. this mean, indeed? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> if, the, that's the million-dollar question. It'd be nice if the tradition ha- actually had an answer to that, but there's, there's lots of answers to it. Um, so then you start considering some of the options, and uh, you say a hypostasis is a concrete instance of a particular sort of nature. Thus, the doctrine of the Trinity would appear to be asserting that God is a single nature in three concrete instances— but that would seem to mean that there are three gods. Why don't we unpack that concern a little bit? Just for the person who's not educated in philosophy, tell us what a nature is and what an instance of a nature is and give us some examples. This is a complicated question because there are two ways of talking about natures historically. One way is to think of natures as these abstract sort of ideal realities that are intrinsically general and can be instantiated by multiple objects. Mm -hmm. And another way of thinking about them is as concrete particular entities. So think, for example, if you write the letter A on a piece of paper three times, how many letters are there on that piece of paper? In one sense, there are three letters because you have the letter A written three times. And in another sense, there's only one letter because you have three instances of the letter A. Mm -hmm. So from the point of view of the general, there's only one letter there, right? There's a letter A, this sort of generic general um, ideal reality of the letter A. From the point of view of the particular and the concrete, there are three letters there because you have this A, that A, and then the other A. So when we talk about natures, also we can think, okay, if you have three dogs, how many animals are there in the room? Well, in one sense, there are three animals because you have three you know, concrete natures, so to speak. In another sense, there's only one animal because you have three instances of the dog nature. So depending on the interpretation of nature in the Trinitarian doctrine, you can differ, right? You, you come up with different uh, explanations of things. Uh, and this ambiguity about whether it's meant abstractly or concretely influences how people interpret the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. So then you continue in this thought in your next tweet. You say, consider how we could say if three human beings that they are a single usia, human nature, in three hypostases, three instances. If this is how the terms are understood in the doctrine of the Trinity, then it turns out to be tritheism, there would be three gods. Exactly. It's the old distinction between first usia and second usia from Aristotle, right? That Correct. A nature could mean, or a substance equally could mean a thing of a certain kind, or it could mean kind of the kind. So that which makes an individual a thing of a certain kind. So human nature, in one sense, you and I would be human natures. In the other sense, human nature is what makes you a human being and what makes me a human being. Switch to the divine case. Divine nature is just whatever it is that makes the owner a god. When you got three different things, each of them have everything it takes to be a god. Yeah, looks like you got three gods. 
in my view, this is the problem that bedeviled um, Basil of Caesarea toward the end yeah, of and his you, life. Yeah, and you have even contemporary theologians who propose something like this. You have the, the so-called social trinitarians, mm-hmm. like Miroslav Wolf and Jürgen Moltmann and uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. and others. Um, really what they're saying, and Richard Swinburne too, really it seems to me what they're saying is that there are three gods. You have three distinct beings, three distinct things, you know, that all instantiate the same nature. Then you have three gods, and there's not really a way of getting around that. Now, there are games that philosophers and theologians play to try to get around this, and they redefine terms and try to say, well, we have one god in this sense and three gods in whatever. But I think all of that at the end of the day is like, you know, I I don't think that's really sincere. I think the obvious point to make is that if you have three things, you have three things. If you have three instances of the divine nature, then you have three gods. Just accept it. Right. Just by definition, that's what an instance of the divine nature is. It's a god. Yeah, I mean, another example would be my friend, uh, Dr. William Hasker, and his big book on the Trinity, who would call himself a social Trinitarian. And he spends about the last, I think it's the last third of the book, trying to show why this isn't tritheism. And, you know, he kind of throws everything but the kitchen sink at the problem. And personally, as a reader, I wasn't buying it by the, by the time we got to the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like maybe I read Constitution? Book when I was in my uh, grad school days, I took a, a seminar with Oliver Crisp on the Doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. And we read Moltmann and Hasker and a bunch of different guys. And I, re- I remember uh, that discussion also. Yeah. I mean, you know, just some of the obvious basic moves, they might say, well, yeah, but these guys are super unified in how they think and act and they couldn't be disunified. You'd be like, well, why couldn't three gods be unified like that if there could be three gods? You know? Exactly, exactly. Uh, maybe they're all they're constituted by the same nature. Well, why couldn't three gods be constituted by the same? I don't know. Like it's, yeah, I think this has been a problem for Nicene tradition even really a little bit before it was properly Trinitarian. But that's another conversation. So then you you say, well, that that doesn't look like a promising route to go down. So then you have another alternative here in your big tweet storm here. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what if instead we think of the shared essence as a concrete object? say, the way out of this problem is to assert that the three hypostases share a single concrete usia, essence, nature, substance, rather than understanding the usia as an abstract universal. But then the doctrine asserts that God is three instances of a single concrete nature, three things and one thing. This is naturally a contradiction since you cannot have three instances of a single concrete thing. You can write the letter A three times on a piece of paper, but that's three instances of an abstract thing. You cannot have the same concrete thing three times over. Help us understand this other move where the nature is concrete and not abstract. Yeah, the difficulty with this move is that if you think about usia concretely, it almost becomes a synonym with hypostasis. If an usia is a concrete instance of a nature, well, that's exactly how they define hypostasis in the tradition, a concrete instance of a particular kind of nature, namely a rational nature, if you want to translate hypostasis as person. 
So you have one usia, one concrete nature, and three subsistent instances of that concrete nature. Well, I mean, this is basically saying that you have one thing and three things at the same time, because usia interpreted concretely, like I said, is synonymous with hypostasis. You know, the primary substance for Aristotle, the, the concrete existing thing, is exactly an, an hypostasis in, you know, this later language, a concrete existing thing of a certain nature. And you find this dialectic in John of Damascus. If you read, for example, John of Damascus's treatise on heresies, he mm -hmm. goes through all the heresies that he can think of, you know, some of them are even invented. And by the end, he has a discussion about the Trinity. And he says very nicely at the end of the whole discussion, do not ask how the Trinity is Trinity, for the Trinity is inscrutable. Well, that's because of the way that he defines his terms. He eventually ends up saying that the Trinity is a single divine nature in three concrete instances. But he means a single concrete nature in three instances. Well, how do you have that? <laughs> because an instance is exactly a concrete nature. And then he says, you know, don't ask how the Trinity is Trinity, for the Trinity is inscrutable. Mm. This, I think, is where the more classical understanding of the Trinity that you find in John of Damascus and his predecessors, I think most of them are probably trying to say this, that you have a single concrete nature that subsists in three instances, but that doesn't make any sense. Because concrete natures are not supposed to be repeatable or to have multiple in They don't have instances at all. They're, they're, they are instances. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. I mean, people like John are, they're kind of hyper-traditionalist in a sense, you know. There's very little that he says that you do not find in the two Gregories from the late 300s. In his mind, he's just passing on Catholic tradition right. as it was completely developed, and he was maybe kind of systematizing it, and he's, he adds his own little twist to it. Yeah, I think that's what's useful about John of Damascus is that mm -hmm. he, he represents a very nice sort of paradigm statement of the, the Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. He's not really an outlier. He just sort of gives you more or less what the Catholic tradition had come to say by the time, you know, whenever he was living in the 600s or 700s. I do think for that reason, it's all the more compelling that effectively, if you follow his definitions, you end up with the notion of the Trinity as three things in one thing. And I remember when I was an undergrad at ASU, uh, one of my professors, uh, Douglas Portmore, in the intro to philosophy class, he made a comment about the Trinity at one point, it was offhand, and he said, well, how can you have one thing that's three things? And I remember raising my hand and I said, well, that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity teaches. You know, and I thought, well, you can make this distinction between one being and three persons. Mm -hmm. And that sounds good. It's, it's sort of like a good initial response. That's the standard opening move for apologetics. Yeah, exactly. But once you actually sit down and address, well, what exactly is a being meant? What exactly is a person? Well, how are these terms used? You end up back where my professor started, which is that, you know, they're trying to say one thing and three things. There's even an interesting line in Gregory of Nazianzus. He gives an analogy for trying to understand what is the Trinity. And he, he says, imagine three suns, like the sun in the sky, imagine three suns that converge and overlap entirely in their being. Um, mm. you know, so that they're, you know, I, I forget where he gives that exact image, but I'm thinking to myself, like, what you're describing is impossible. <laughs> but you have one sun there, right? How can you have three things that overlap entirely? Interesting. Yeah, you know what? That's funny. My uh, One of my former professors, uh, Stephen Davis from Claremont McKenna, in a book chapter, I think it was, he drew three circles separate. And then he drew one circle and said, imagine that now the three are completely overlapping. So there's both three circles and one circle. I guess maybe that's where he got the inspiration from was this passage in uh, Gregory that you're talking about. But he, I guess he would yeah. just own that, hey, it's just an apparent contradiction. Well, let me ask you, there, I mean, there's a couple of things you could do if you get to this juncture. You could say, I think it's a true contradiction, or you could say, 
it looks like a contradiction. Sure, I grant that, but it just can't be a real one because it's true. So, I mean, what's wrong with just accepting apparent contradictions? Because God's beyond our understanding, and surely if you can't fully understand something, then when you're thinking about it, you're going to run into apparent contradictions. Right. So why not, why not take well, one of those paths? One of the reasons why not to take that path is that, in the first place, it's not obvious that we actually have enough evidence to be so confident that that's what God means to be saying about himself. Mm. Uh, so you might think, okay, well, listen, let's go back to our sources. What do our sources actually tell us? Do they really motivate us to think this way? Or maybe we took a wrong turn somewhere. Yeah. Um, another possibility is to say that, well, it's not obvious that this is the only way for understanding the Trinity, because even John of Damascus and these other figures will give different analogies that actually move in a different direction. So at the end of his treatise on heresies, John of Damascus gives this image, you know, imagine the sun and its rays and its light, right? These are mm-hmm. really the, the sun is like the thing, and then the rays and the light are like dimensions or aspects of the way that the thing presents itself and they're sort of coeval with the thing. You can't have the sun without its rays or the sun without its luminousness. You always have them together, but nevertheless, you can sort of distinguish between the thing and then like certain dimensions of the thing. That's an entirely different sort of metaphor than three suns that overlap perfectly, right? Because here we have a a certain asymmetry between the sun and its rays and its luminosity, sort of the thing and its various, you know, inseparable properties, and then three supposedly independent things that overlap entirely in their being. Those are those are different images altogether. So a second point to make would be it's not even obvious that we have to understand the Trinity in this way. Mm-hmm. Because the ancient Trinitarian theologians offer other analogies which actually push the the analysis in a different direction. Well, this is to me, what makes the Cappadocian Fathers and especially Augustine so difficult. Augustine's clear about this in his big, horrible Trinity book, that he thinks there's tons of analogies that he's willing to use, and he's like, they're all bad. But he thinks that even though they're all really inapt analogies, that somehow by piling on different ones one after the other, that this is going to help somehow. (laughs) He's not giving models like a philosopher would like, you know, tell me what your position is. You think this triune God is now go and tell me literally, right? Don't, don't give me metaphors. Don't give me bad analogies. Like, tell me literally what you think this is. He seems to have the view, Augustine, that no, no, you, you just can't do that. Like you're just stuck with bad analogies. So here, here's another analogy. Here's another one. Here's another one. Anytime you try to make them into literal models, he'll be, well, that's not really what I'm saying. Of course, many right. later readers are like, oh, I like that one, you know, <laughs> mind, will, and love or something. They kind of cherry pick this one passage and like, okay, that's Augustine's view. But it's way more convoluted than that, right? Isn't that the same kind of attitude that you see in John of Damascus, that it's only going to be bad analogies all the way down? Yeah. So even at the end of um, On Heresies, he'll give these analogies and he'll immediately say right afterwards, you know, but even, you know, even if these analogies don't do the trick, you have to believe in the Trinity because, you know, this is the teaching of the church and this is what God has revealed. And then of the Orthodox faith, an exposition of the Orthodox faith, he makes the same point that it's better to think about God in abstraction from all created things and not to try to find creaturely analogies for God Mm -hmm. because he exceeds being, he's beyond this realm that we you know, that we can appeal to, to find our analogies. He's something else altogether. So you have to think of him in abstraction from all creaturely categories. And then later on in the history of theology, you'll have Karl Barth, for example, in his discussion of the Trinity, rejecting the notion of the vestigium trinitatis, 
he just says there are no vestiges of the Trinity in nature. None of the natural analogies really work. The doctrine of the Trinity has to be appreciated purely on its own terms. That's just the way things go. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have an authoritarian view, I guess, about theology, someone like Augustine and John will just tell you, hey, look, just believe this. This is just what the church teaches, whatever it is. You're just supposed to kind of accept that this is obviously true. It seems to me that's kind of just demanding verbal assent and just telling you, you don't need to worry your pretty little head, little lady, about all of these hard problems that are way beyond you. Hey, they're beyond us too, even though we're we're of a better sort than you. But yeah, that's kind of an unsatisfying answer, isn't it? I think it's entirely inappropriate. And I think that it's really more a matter of like the you know ecclesial will to power than anything else. You know, Karl Rahner, for example, says in his book on the Trinity, the Trinity is an absolute mystery that we don't understand even after it's been revealed. Well, if you don't understand it, how can you call it a revelation, right? Because revelation implies clarity, it implies lucidity, it implies that you can see. And the, you know, the conclusion that a lot of people come to after really wrestling with the doctrine of the Trinity is that we cannot see we, what is being said here, what is actually being affirmed. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Um, so why, why call it a revelation only to undermine that entirely by saying that it's unknowable revelation? That, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Well, the reason why we call it a revelation is because the church proposes it as such. Yeah. Uh, like you were saying. In Augustine's book, it's clear that he thinks this is just what the church has always taught which just it blows me away right because he became a christian like right after this was made orthodoxy by the second ecumenical council but this is just what he's been told so this is what he thinks that hey this is going back to the beginning this is just church teaching right and anybody who has read anti-nicene works knows that that's not true there were so many people alive in the time of nicaea and constantinople who never taught any such things never heard of any such things and they weren't necessarily disciples of Arius. Uh, Vladimir Latinovich, for example, has this really nice paper called Arius Conservativus, and he's, he's arguing that Arius actually represented a more conservative tradition in Catholic theology at his time. And he says that one of the reasons why the Nicene position took so long in being generally accepted is because it just was not what people believed in very many places. Yeah. And you have... Outside of the elite, yeah. Yeah. And you have... You know, bishops, for example, in the area of like modern day Croatia and the Balkans, you know, being called to trial for heresy and they're being called Arians and they defend themselves by saying, I don't know who Arius is. I've never heard of him. I've never seen his face. I don't know who this Arius is. I'm just teaching what I was taught and what Mm -hmm. we've always believed where I'm from. So the plain fact of the matter is that Nicene theology that affirms the consubstantiality of father and son, that simply was not the majority position in the whole church. It simply was not what Christians everywhere were believing and teaching. It's a, an idea. Yeah. I'm sure that it, it has a nice history, but it wasn't simply the majority position. You can read, for example, the Didache. You can read very early Christian works. They don't talk like that about God and Jesus. They have a very different way of, of speaking. Mm-hmm. You know, They don't sound like Nicenes when they talk about the Father's relation to the Son and so on. Mm-hmm. So really what this is, it's just a particular faction or party within the whole of the Catholic tradition that eventually came to dominate and took itself as, you know, they claimed for themselves the authority to define dogma for the whole church. And they eventually won, you know, majority support, you know, whether through their own efforts and polemics or the assistance of the emperor and so on. But it was by no means what people were believing from the beginning. There's an interesting book by a guy named Mark Edwards. I think it's yeah. called Catholicity and Heresy or something mm-hmm. like that. 
he makes the point in the book that modes of reasoning that were found in the so-called Gnostic groups that were contended by Irenaeus and Tertullian and these guys, you find almost the same exact modes of reasoning now being used later in defense of orthodoxy. So whereas Irenaeus and these figures would object to the Gnostics ideas of these emanations coming out of the Godhead, that's almost exactly what you have with the supposed eternal processions. What is the per- eternal procession except emanations, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the son eternally and, and timelessly emanates out of the father and the Holy Spirit likewise. It's the same idea of emanation. It's just now that the Orthodox party is using it in a certain way, whereas previously it was heretical parties doing it. And even with the Gnostics, one of the interesting things reading about the Gnostics is that they hypostatize all these things that we would just think of as properties of God, you know, Logos, Sophia, Agape, and so on, all these things that we would just think of as qualities of God and properties of his, they turn them into hypostases, they turn them into like these subsisting, you know, celestial things. And of course, because there are so many properties of God listed in the scriptures, they have this massive jungle of hypostatic logoi and and agape and archons and whatever they wanted to call them. And you create this massive speculative system by just taking any property of God and turning it into a, a thing, a yep. subsistent thing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what the Nicene tradition does when it talks about God's word and spirit, <laughs> right? It takes these things that would normally be understood as properties or qualities of God and it hypostatizes them. It says, no, these things have hypostasis, they have subsistence. And then the question is, well, how do we preserve the oneness of God while also granting hypostasis to the word and to the spirit? It's the same things going on as as was in uh, Gnosticism. It's just that now it's taken for granted as orthodoxy because somehow this won the day. Hmm. You know, it won the historical battle, whereas the previous views did not. You know, anybody who's honest has to think like this whole process is really not rational. It's not that like people were guided by the arguments and this is like clearly it. Yeah, there's, you know, this is one of the reasons, even though I I do not deny the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the reasons why I I tweet about it and I write things where I, I point out and I try to call to mind the difficulty of the doctrine is that I think that most people are not honest about how actually tenuous and problematic this doctrine is. They take it for granted. They anathematize people who disagree with it. If you question it, you are, you know, in danger of hellfire right away. But people don't actually realize, anybody who studies theology knows this, but anybody, like average people on the street and especially the, you know, the theo bros on the internet, they don't realize this doctrine is highly difficult and it's not at all easy to tell what is being said. At the end of the day, it may just be no more than a verbal formula and a shibboleth. (laughs) Yes, I've I've got a podcast about this. It's called uh, Trinity Club Orientation. Um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not everybody knows the shibboleth terminology. Can you explain that? It comes from Judges basically, 12. A shibboleth is, yeah, basically a shibboleth is, you know, you can tell a person is a member of a club if they talk in the right way. Yeah. But if their accent is off, if their dialect is off, then you know they don't belong. Yeah. That's what the Trinity is. How can you have Jürgen Moltmann and Karl Barth both be Trinitarians when their pictures of God could not be more different than one another? Yeah. They don't agree on anything, and yet they're somehow both Trinitarians because they use the right words. That's all that it is. Mm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Dr. Nemish why he is in any sense a Trinitarian.
Dr. Nemish, it sounds like you're granting quite a lot. You're saying that you don't think that Nicene Trinitarianism was an original Christian teaching, but it arose through time and it was a minority view that eventually captured orthodoxy, became a required view. You seem like you're very Protestant in your background. Like, why would this not make you move in the direction of just not being Trinitarian? Like, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, you say, hey, this is just what the great church teaches. I don't care mm-hmm. if it's fourth century. I don't care if it, if it was originally a minority view. Like, this is just what the teaching magisterium of the church says. You don't seem to be that way. So why are you that loyal? I'm not really sure how loyal you are, but I think you know what I'm trying to ask. Like, why be a Trinitarian? Yeah. I have a book coming out either at the end of this year or next year. It's, it's called uh, The Theology of the Manifest. Christianity Without Metaphysics. And basically, this book is my dissertation plus some other research that I have done in the meantime. And what I am arguing in the book is that the Catholic tradition of theology is built upon certain methodological and ontological and epistemological presuppositions that compromise it fundamentally, make it rationally compromised. Uh, And one of the reasons why it has these presuppositions is that basically the Catholic tradition has this preoccupation with metaphysics. Now, what do I mean by metaphysics? Because you you hear people talk about metaphysics all the time today, but Mm -hmm. they don't all seem to be saying the same thing. What I mean by metaphysics is discourse about realities that lie beyond this phenomenal realm of experience, you know, to use the Kantian term, the reality or irreality of which, the existence or non-existence of which would make no experiential difference whatsoever. So, for example, you see Christ, you know, walking along the road like John the Baptist, and you say, look, there's the Lamb of God. Christ is a human being. He appears in the world, so to speak. He has a body. He can be touched. He can be heard. He can be seen and so on. All of these are qualities of his that are experientially manifest, right? Whether or not Christ had red hair would make a difference to the world of experience. He would look differently to people. But whether or not he is consubstantial with the Father is a question that would make no experiential difference whatsoever. He would not look any different. There would be nothing experientially different if Christ were or were not consubstantial with the Father. That is because this notion of consubstantiality is a purely, in my way of speaking, metaphysical notion that has to do with this realm that lies entirely beyond the world of experience and its structures and this manifest sphere that we talk about. So... When we talk about things that lie beyond the world of experience, it's not easy to prove things one way or the other. It's not easy to prove a view false. It's not easy to prove a view true. Because basically what we're doing is we're just talking about the relations between ideas. We're talking about, well, if you accept these abstract notions, then this follows. If you accept these abstract notions, then that follows. So the reason why I'm not just an anti-Trinitarian or whatever is because I I don't think that you can prove it false. I don't think that this notion that God subsists in three hypostases, in the first place, it's not easy to say even what that is supposed to mean. But it's not the sort of thing that is easily proven false, so I'm not committed to its falsehood. It's just that, for me, it's a speculation that is not an essential part of the core of Christian faith. It's what can be called a theologumenon. It's a matter of opinion. You can believe it, you cannot believe it, it's fine. For me, the Christian faith is not fundamentally about speculative metaphysics. It's about this world of experience that we live in. It's, it's about uh, living in a certain way in relation to God and to other people. And the doctrine of the Trinity, because it is metaphysical speculation, it just makes no difference to that. So it's an, in, it's an indifferent matter. It may be true, but it's, it's just not something that's essential to the faith as far as I'm concerned. 
I mean, would belief in God count as metaphysics for you? Um, that there is a God? It depends on how you define God. I do agree that typically people think of God as a distinct being who is totally distinct from the world. He creates the world out of nothing. He belongs to a different sort of dimension or sphere of reality. He's inex- you know, experientially inaccessible and so on. Robert Sokolowski, the Catholic priest and philosopher, he talks about this idea that he finds in the Catholic tradition, and it's especially nicely expressed in Anselm. Uh, he calls it the Christian distinction. This is in his book, The God of Faith and Reason. And he says that Christianity has this notion that there's the world and then there's God, and there's this fundamental radical break. There's this division, this distinction between the world and God. And God is in his own sphere. He has his own categories that apply to him. And then there's the world. There's the things that we see and so on. And there's this distinction between the world and God. Well, I don't accept that. I have what you might call a sort of panentheistic or qualified monistic view. I think that individual things like me and you and the earth, the planet earth and so on, all these objects that, you know, present themselves to us and experience, these relate to God the way, for example, your fist relates to your body. So you have your body, you exercise agency and you form a fist. Well, the fist is like a modification or a dimension, an aspect of your body. It can be treated as an object on its own, but it's not, there's ontological differentiation without ontological distance. There's a difference between your fist and the rest of your body, but there's not this sharp chasm. There's not this, you know, uncrossable distance. And that's how I think God relates to the things in the world. I think all things exist within God's being. He brings them about by acting upon himself and modifying himself the way that I might form a fist. Um, So because you have, there are different conceptions of God, you know, is God a metaphysical thing in my scheme or not? Well, he's not because uh, for me, God is not beyond the world. Uh, the world is in God. The world is sort of like a, a modification that God takes upon himself. He acts on himself and he brings things into existence in himself, so to speak. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, an atheist is going to, to a large extent, experience things like we are, except for they're probably going to be lacking a certain dimension of religious experience. But this seems like a disagreement that any Christian would have. Could somebody be a Christian and and uh, just be kind of, uh, yeah, I believe in the universe. What's the problem? If you want to call that God, you can call it God. Fine. I, I think we're all parts of that or something like that. Mm-hmm. Would you say we can't say that this is a dividing line because this is a purely metaphysical disagreement? You raise an interesting question, which is namely like, what you know, what is the difference between a Christian and an atheist? You can say that a Christian believes in God, an atheist doesn't. But mm-hmm. then you have the question, okay, well, what is God? And here even Christians will disagree among themselves. You have a lot of people, for example, in the Christian tradition that insist on this sharp distinction between God and, and the world of you know finite things. Uh, but then you also have Christian theologians throughout history and especially in the present day who say, no, maybe there is not this you know ontological chasm between creator and creature. Maybe they're closer together. Interestingly enough, if you read Huldrych Zwingli's commentary on true and false religion and also his uh, treatise on providence, he proposes something like this, you know, what I've been calling panentheistic or sort of qualified monistic conception of God. You know, he gives one argument, for example, where he says that God is infinite being, but he could not be infinite if things existed outside of him, because then there would be a, a limit to his being, right? There would be this thing over here, and then there's a limit of God's being. Everything has to exist within God. And that's almost a sort of a Spinozistic argument. Um, he has another, you know, s- some very suggestive passages where he says that God is like a sort of stuff out of which everything is made. 
you know, everything that exists is God, is in God, exists through God, and so on. He proposes this, what I call a qualified monistic, and you might even call it spinozistic at times, conception of God. This is just how he thinks things are. Is it really monistic, though? I mean, monism is that there's really one thing. There's really one substance, or there's really one individual, and everything that appears to be an individual is really just sort of an aspect or manifestation of that one real thing. Is it that? That's exactly what he says. Um, Zwingli? He says, for example, that, yeah, that's, that's what Zwingli says. He has this passage in the commentary on true and false religion, I think, if it's not, otherwise it's, it's his treatise on providence, where he says that we call things created, not because they exercise, you know, like powers of their own, but because they are new manifestations of the single power of God. Uh, so he's a kind of an occasionalist. For example, he would not say that strictly speaking, you know, I cause something to happen. What is happening is that my doing something is just a new manifestation, a new individuated manifestation of God's power. Um, so it's exactly like you're saying. There is really, strictly speaking, one thing, that's God. And all the things that we're used to thinking of as subsistences, like you, me, this dog, that cat, whatever, these are not actually you know, independent, subsistent things. These are dimensions, modes, aspects, whatever, modifications of God's being that he brings about in himself. And that's the view that Zwingli argues. This is the view that I argue in my book. The philosopher that I mentioned earlier, Michel Henry, he also uh, has a view like this, although with a, with a slightly different twist. And so this is, this is where I'm coming from in my doctrine of God. I'm, I'm more along these lines. Hmm. And I realize that this is going to be a point of difference uh, between the two of us and also between me and a lot of uh, Christians throughout history. But this is, you know, this is what I think is true, so it's what I say. It's not clear to me how much you're denying when you're saying that we're not things or independent things. Um, I mean, look, you could be a um, you could be a Christian theist, maybe not a classical theist, but more like the Ryan Mullins kind or the kind that's popular with a lot of Christian philosophers now. And you could still mm -hmm. say that the world is you know kind of analogous to God's body because God's you know perfectly present in it, can act within it, can act through it, and so on. And, you know, if you believe in uh, degrees or kinds of being, you might think God is the most real or something or has the most fundamental kind of reality. And we have this sort of lesser thing. And then you could be saying something very, very similar to what you've said. But, I mean, taken strictly, it sounds like you're denying that I exist and that you exist. Or is it just denying that we are uh, lasting objects? That would be closer to what I mean. I mean that we do not have persistence simply of our, you know, of our, of ourselves. I only exist because God is continually granting me existence. Just like, for example, if I form a fist, my fist is only there so long as I keep my muscles clenched. So my activity of forming a fist is what keeps the fist there. If I stop doing that, well, then there's no more fist. Same thing is true for us. We depend on God for our being at every moment. He is constantly giving sure. us being, yeah. constantly holding us up in being. And so that means that we don't exist apart from him. But the believer in creation, ex nihilo, and who's more traditional in their views about God and the cosmos, they, they could say that, right? Yeah, they could say the same thing. They will, in addition, say that there is a certain distance between the finite thing and God, uh, so that God doesn't bring about a finite thing by acting on himself. Rather, he creates ex nihilo. He brings something into existence to have a in a sense, to have an existence of its own independently of God and distinctly from God's own existence. I argue in my book that if you accept that sort of division of reality into these two different spheres, you run into all kinds of problems. And I, I can't really go into that here, but mm -hmm. 
I, I do think that if you accept that sort of two tier picture of reality, it raises a lot of problems down the uh, later on down the road. Well, okay, but to go back to my question about, you know, why be a Trinitarian? I mean, what about my way of arguing that this was a departure from Christian tradition? So I argue that in the New Testament, the Father and the one God are one and the same. They're numerically identical. And then in any Trinity, to me, any Trinity theory has the one God being identical, not with the Father alone, but with the Trinity. So why shouldn't a Protestant just discard this realm of theorizing like they discard the Pope and praying to the saints and you know, sacramental view of divine grace and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, they very well could. If you think that that's where the evidence lies, then that's what you should do. If you think that even though this Trinitarian opinion is, like, for example, you could have David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart agrees that the, you know, the so-called Arian position is more conservative, more traditional, but he thinks nevertheless that the Nicene speculations were so fruitful for theology because they, to some extent, they were a departure from the tradition. They involved saying something new, you know, making a leap, proposing something different, and that led to new horizons for theology. It was productive. It was a sort of a fecund speculation. So you might take his line where you just admit that, yeah, you know, Trinitarian theology was something new. It wasn't the traditional position, but it's theologically productive to take that step because it opens up new horizons and new vistas for theology that the old theology doesn't. So that's another position. I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, people will disagree with themselves about what's the right way to go about this. But it seems to me you could do either of those things. You could say this is a departure from the tradition. We don't have to go there. Or you can say, even though it's a departure from the tradition, it's theoretically fruitful and it's worth taking it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I see the theoretical fruits. I mean, to me, it's it's an issue of discipleship to Jesus, which is a matter of following his handpicked apostles, going with them when it's conflicting with something else. Well, I have to admit, I'm not a David Bentley Hart fan. Um, I, th- I don't think I'm convinced that he's a theist, to be honest, because he has an ultimate that's a something we know not what. At least that's what I think he thinks. Yeah, you wouldn't be the only one to have questions about his, you know, theological standing. Personally, I I agree with him about a lot of things. I especially agree with his critique of the notion of theological tradition. You know, his most recent book, Tradition and Apocalypse, is a critique of John Henry Newman and Maurice Blondel on this topic of tradition with a capital T in theology and what authority it can have and what's its epistemic value. I agree with him a lot in his critiques of these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, on other matters of metaphysics, I don't share his penchant for metaphysical speculation and and so on. I met, I have a what you might call a, a much more you know desert landscapeish sort of uh, ontology, I suppose. I have a preference for s- simple things. So you know, I, I disagree with him on various issues. Also, I don't mean to commit myself to his his view. I just was presenting him as one possible, you know, response to make to this problem of the novelty of Trinitarian theology. Yeah, I mean, if someone says it's been a really fruitful idea, I guess I would just be like, show me the fruit, you know, because to me, <laughs> it's just it's just been a massive fountain of confusion. It's widely avoided yeah. by lay people and even by ministers. Like they don't want to touch it. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense to them. They feel stupid if they try to discuss it. Even even if they have a seminary education, they still don't want to touch it. Usually, and you would have to specify what Trinitarian theology, because like I was mm-hmm. saying earlier, 
Jürgen Moltmann and Karl Barth are not the same, right. right? But they're both called Trinitarians, even though they could not differ more from each other in terms yeah. of their doctrine of God. So even then you have to speculate, you'd have to specify what Trinitarian theology is so fruitful. Yeah, or which exactly. One, when they just say the Trinity or just Trinitarian theology, I mean, I think that kind of presupposes that that it's one view, but it really doesn't seem to be. I mean, any social Trinitarian, that's still fairly popular amongst the philosopher types like us, people like Hasker and Craig and Swinburne. But then when you look right. at Bart and Rahner, the two most influential 20th century Trinitarian theologians, like they're just diametrically opposed. They seem to me to be what I call one-self views instead of there being three selves there. Exactly right. I think a lot of people, it's like, you know, one day you suddenly realize that even though you and your friends have been using the same words, you don't mean the same thing by them. Mm. And, you know, you sort of wake up to the fact that you have these radical differences. Mm -hmm. You know, you, people go through their lives, they hear about the Trinity their whole life. But when you sit down and take a, you know, like when you take a seminar on the Trinity in grad school, like I did with Oliver Crisp, you read Hasker, he doesn't say the same thing as Craig. Craig doesn't say the same thing as Moltmann. Moltmann doesn't say the same thing as Rahner. Rahner doesn't say the same thing as, you know, Thomas. And Van Inwagen, Ray. Yeah, exactly. Ray, for example. There are just so many differences among Trinitarian theologians. They they don't they are not presenting one doctrine. Mm -hmm. What they are doing is they're taking a certain verbal formula from the, you know, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed and certain other stereotypical formulas. And they're trying to take that verbal formula and fit it within a greater system so that those words have a, a, a specifiable meaning. Basically, you take like a shell, which are the, the words, and fill the shell with something so that you have a, you know, a jello or a cake or a whatever. You know, they're trying to cook basically with like a, a pan. They're trying to fill it with something, but they're not making the same product. Like I was saying, you know, the, mm -hmm. there is no one doctrine of the Trinity. There are various verbal formulas that people take for granted as expressing the doctrine of Trinity, but those formulas are interpreted so differently among Trinitarian theologians that at the end of the day, like we were saying earlier, it's really just a shibboleth. You prove yourself to be a member of the Trinitarian club because you try to make sense of these verbal formulas, but you don't have to have the same metaphysics at the end of the day as anybody else, which it seems to me is backwards. Yeah. It seems weird in that it puts such an emphasis on verbal agreement and just parroting words that you don't understand, whereas you would think that, no, it's the truth of the matter that should be the main thing, but then there's not agreement. That's because this is a matter of authority at the end of the day. It's a matter of submitting and acquiescing to ecclesial authorities, which have decided that this is the way to go. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Is Christian theology fundamentally a matter of knowledge, or rather of submitting to authorities? There was a debate in the Middle Ages about the topic of the Eucharist. There was Berengarius who said, no, the bread and the wine are not transformed into the body and blood of Christ. They clearly have to remain bread and wine if we're going to have a sacrament at all. And he gave all these arguments, mostly drawing from recently translated works of Aristotle and so on. Uh, at least I think that's right. Against this idea of the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. 
On the other side, there was a guy named Lanfranc of Beck. He has this wonderful line in one of his books against Berengarius, where he says, I would rather be a totally ignorant rustic and affirm the Catholic faith than to be an educated heretic. Mm. Um, and Henry Chadwick comments on this whole scenario, and he says, here we have two different visions for theology. Berengarius says that theology can be this sort of scientific dialectical field where you pursue evidence and you present arguments for your position, and it's fundamentally about trying to figure out the truth rationally. Lanfranc represents this other conception for theology where it's fundamentally about deference for authority and appealing to the explicit statements of authorities. And it's just basically, you know, the appeal to authority as the fundamental theological mode of argument or rational persuasion of whatever kind, uh, independently of the appeal to the authority. These are two different visions for theology. And it seems to me that fundamentally, people who think that the Trinity is some non-negotiable for Christian faith, what they are doing is that they're taking the appeal to the authority as the fundamental mode of theological reasoning. They think that being a Christian is fundamentally a matter of submitting to authorities. It's not about seeing that this stuff is true for yourself. It's not about being convinced in your own mind that these things are likely to be true. It's about submitting to authorities. And you let your submission guide your reasoning. And that's why people won't question these things or they'll insist on being a Trinitarian, even if you point to them the fact that there is no one doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. They'll say, it doesn't matter. This is what the church teaches. We have to believe it. That's religion as submission to authority. It's a kind of an authoritarian religion rather than the more rational religion, which says, no, I believe this stuff because I think it's true. And if I come to be convinced that it's false and I'm not going to believe it anymore, no matter what people say, no matter what authorities you can bring in favor of an opinion, if it's false, I can't believe it. And it can be true or false independently of what people think about it. Yeah. And if I agree to nod my head when you're talking, that doesn't, <laughs> I'm agreeing to what? I have no idea. Like I just, right. I'm just not caring about that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just complying. Next week, part two of my conversation with Dr. Stephen Nemish, in which we'll get through the rest of his epic tweet thread about Trinity theories. This week's thinking music has been the track Jonah's Message for New York by Dr. Turtle. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Also, be sure to check out that blog post for a whole bunch of links to Dr. Nemish's work and to most of the things that were discussed in the course of this episode. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.